Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to episode 20 of the PetroNerds Podcast. I am your co-host, Ethan Bellamy, here with Trisha Curtis, the CEO of PetroNerds. We've got three good topics today. First, we're going to talk about the market as usual, and then it's a special field trip episode as Trisha talks about her trip to Midland, Texas, as well as showing up to the Liberty Oilfield Services Investor Day, home of the Happy Valley Fraconomics. I'm a big fan of a really good 3D render and a, and a, a thought like that. So without further ado, we're going to dive in. Trisha, let's talk about the market first. $100 oil, are we there? Yeah. Um, so one, hopefully one, let's, let's, let's just hope this recording setup works because that'd be really exciting. So we'll, we'll ask our guests or our listeners to forgive us for uh, video and, and audio on this, on this test run. Um, but yeah, so before we get into these, the f- super fun field trips, which were awesome. And, and um, you know, I, I do love being in the field. So $100 oil, look, we're at $73 today. I can't help but talking about the market. Um, I think that, you know, Bank of America has called for 100. It's really easy to call for 100, and it's really easy to call for higher ore prices when prices keep going up. And I do think that, you know, the Fed's, um, the fact that, you know, Jerome Powell came out last week and we we had a, the folks get nervous in the market, and then this week it sort of was calmed down after his testimony. Um, you know, Bullard had come out, a, a Fed member, and and others basically saying that they were going to, they're looking to raise rates in 2022 as opposed to 2023. All that didn't actually impact oil prices as much um, as I thought it would. And certainly there are a lot of analysts and spectators that agree with me that, you know, we should have seen with the, the nervousness and hesitancy on inflation and with also the, just actually the, the dollar moves that we should have seen, um, the, we should have seen oil pull back. It hasn't really pulled back. I think um, part of that's just because the momentum is in its favor. And there's something to be said about momentum trading and traders sort of bidding this up. So I think we're seeing a bit of that. And I think it could be somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If folks want to take this higher, they can certainly take it higher. Um, There are a couple things that I've heard lately. Like if you're staying up and you're watching the markets, it's funny because I hear these things like 2008 and 2013 and they're like oh look this is like the indicators that said we're going to 100 and i'm like and then what happened after 2008 and what happened after 2013 prices crashed you know so i think that if we're going to 100 we're coming back down so i would be a little bit more nervous and and i guess you know shell and chevron and exxon have all said look what prices are going higher and that's great to an extent for for these oil companies, but it is not good for it's not good for the consumer. It is not good for long term demand. And I think even um, I think you'd heard it. The Saudi oil minister was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and he had made a comment when when talking about this being a super cycle. You know, he had said it's his job um, to make sure it's not. And I thought that was really an interesting coming out of the Saudis. But it's also important. I mean, you've seen the numbers, right? The the OPEC numbers, and I keep telling this, I've got friends texting me all the time, oil companies saying, and I say, look, this one's different because OPEC production is different. So demand, yes, ramping up, I'm confident, I, you know, we're seeing that in everything, you know, we definitely saw some bullish numbers out of the US, but OPEC numbers for May, for total OPEC production is not even 25.5 million barrels per day. They're shy of of 25.5 million barrels per day. Now that's like about 400,000 barrels a day higher than the month prior. So we did see Saudi Arabia increase output from 8.1 million barrels per day to 4.7 million barrels per day, roughly just under that. So you got to remember the last time we saw prices, you know, when did we see prices high and when did they crash? We definitely saw OPEC production, particularly Saudi production. Saudi production, what, in 2018, before prices cratered, was probably pushing, you know, between 11 and 12 and was probably sort of in that 11 and a half million barrel day mark. We're talking about eight and a half million barrels a day right now. So they are absolutely 100% keeping, you know, barrels offline and keeping this market tight and constrained. And as you've seen, and probably lots of listeners have seen, they're selling everything off. I mean, they're going to the bond market, they're going crazy, they're doing all kinds of things. And that's 
if, if I was running the kingdom, that's what I would be doing too. Let prices get a little high, sell things off, sell assets and stakes and pipelines, and then go about your business. So to me, I just think this is not a normal market in which that I do think the Saudis have an incredible amount of, uh, you know, they have an incredible amount of control and that they've withheld these barrels. And should they want to bring them back, they can bring prices down easier. So what do you think OPEC's spare capacity is now? And is that the biggest reason why we wouldn't have sustained triple digit prices? Because I, I think one of the theses that's driving the market is, yeah, there's spare capacity. But if you if you push forward some trend lines, we could we could run out of spare capacity from OPEC. And uh, and also, just as an aside, I think the the Iran nuclear deal is is close to completion, and that looks like the ability to bring a few more million barrels back on the market as well. Yeah, so those are both those are hugely relevant. I think the other piece of this is that I think so. It's like in that people saying we don't have we won't have enough spare capacity when we need it, um, which we don't need it now, or we we would be using it. Um, we don't. We will have a shortfall of investment, and the, the in the whole Iran thing. Now, the reason, partly, why oil is seventy three dollars a barrel right now is because we don't have a deal with Iran. So, Iran did elect their hardliner. Shocker. Um, you know, they they um, so they have a hardliner in in place, but that's not the person that's doing the Iran deal. So that's you know. We haven't actually even been at the table for the Iran nuclear deal. We actually have diplomats on either side actually doing the negotiating stuff. And we're not nearly as close as I think a lot of people think. And that's why we have $73 oil. Now, that's traders probably getting ahead of themselves. But I do think the Biden administration wants to do this deal. The problem is it's not looking good for Biden. It looks like he's he's going to look pretty dovish on Iran if he goes through with this because he's not getting much in return. He's getting kind of a hope that, hey, we won't build a nuclear you know, we won't build a bomb with with all this nuclear instrument that we ha- or this uranium version we have right now. So that's helping keep the market inflated. That that uncertainty right there it is certainly helping prices. And I think that was the biggest backdrop against the dollar sort of looking a little bit better um, with, um, you know, potential that will raise rates in, in 2023. And then that aside, I think the shortfall of investment. And I always say this, it does make me nervous because, you know, I think the everybody wants to talk about us having a we're going to have a shortfall of investment. Nobody's going to invest in and oil prices are, you know, it's going oil prices going up now is not a result of a shortfall of investment. So today, the oil price increase we have now is not a result of shortfall investment. Those things are being a little bit conflated. So I'm assuming people think we'll have this rise, the rise immediately to $100 a barrel is not going to be shortfall investment either. You, the U.S. producers being very slow, slower to ramp up the rig count is not a shortfall necessarily of investment. So I think globally we have to be careful. The old school oil guys tend to say shortfall of investment. Yeah, it's a shift in financial policy, right? I mean, it's it's this this new ENP paradigm of living within cash flow that investors have, have pressed upon them, which thus far they look committed to. Right. Well, but that's, I think we have to be, and we'll, we'll, we can talk about that when we get into the Liberty thing, but you can look at the rig breakdown in the U.S. And so I think, you know, come back to the OPEC thing real, really quick. You know, if we're looking at Saudi Arabia at 8.46, you know, 8.47 million barrels per day of production right now, they ha- we know they can easily go to 12 million barrels per day. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can bank on at least 3 million barrels a day spare capacity. I am not worried about spare capacity. Um, and then I think, and then we also know that, you know, this whole Iran thing is that Iran has added a million barrels a day of production in basically the end of last year to now. So they did that all swell under sanctions, all swell increasing the uranium enrichment. So they can probably add another million barrels a day back relatively quickly, but they're bringing these barrels back. And I do think the, the only concern for OPEC really, you know, for the Saudis and their control is that everybody wants to bring barrels back. You know, they're going to want to increase these barrels. So how long can they sort of keep this? And it seems like they have been able to keep decent continuity doing their monthly meetings and also just because it's work or prices are up. So people seem happy. Now, on the U.S. side, I caution this because I think it's where people point at the U.S. and then they say, "Okay, that's where we're going to have a shortfall of investment. And certainly if you are looking at Shell and you are looking at um, Exxon and you are looking at, you know, Chevron, you're looking at what their shareholders have done to the, you know, the Dutch court ruling and what's happened with Exxon and Chevron from a shareholder perspective. Yeah, I, I would. I don't think you can hold those into your portfolio anymore, whether you're a generalist or whether you're a, um, you know, you're managing a portfolio and you say, I want some oil in that. I don't know if those are the best stocks anymore because I don't think they're representative. So those guys are probably, 
you know, not indicative of everything. But if you break out the rig count, over half are private companies. And that rig count, we're at, you know, so just we're 470 rigs according to Baker Hughes total. Now, Inveris will say we have more, which is important to count, take that into account. But let's just say 470 total as of the 18th of June. Now, 373 of those rigs were oil, 97 of them gas. If we rewind this to the beginning of April, April 3rd, 2020, we had 378 oil rigs and we had um, 465 total. So we are back to where we were in April. And look, they're continuing to go higher. And you can't, you know, looking at the rig count is not a perfect indication of production. And there's a lot of nuances on the frack side and everything. But it's important that the rig count can't keep going up and production is just going to flat, stay flat. That's not going to happen. And two, really interesting is when those privates are the ones that are driving that rig count growth, they are the drill baby drill folks, okay? They are the ones that are going to drill and complete those wells and bring on production. So and they are not living within cash flow like the public MPs. They are free will. It's it's a whole different world for these privates and right. and everything. And the, the things are hot and the money is good. And you know they don't have the const- they don't have lots of different types of constraints. I'm not saying that right now everybody's making money unless they're. No, there's just spending really, really poorly. And you don't have the service cost inflation just yet that we've had before. So now is the time. If you're absolutely, if you're public or private, you should be going gangbusters. So I think that that's, um, w- that will hit the market. You know, we, we certainly aren't going to see the U.S., you know, below 11 million barrels per day, you know, exiting the year. So I just caution of, are we going to be back to 13 million barrels a day? No way. But are we are we declining? No. And are we, you know, OPEC has gotten it wrong before. I'm just saying 100 or 200,000 barrels a day higher than they think, you know. Yeah, those are real. That's not a ton of crude, but it, it's not like, you know, we're still the largest oil producer in the entire world by far. Um, I will note that, you know, Russia's at 10.75 million barrels per day, you know, and that doesn't include, I believe that, they say that's liquids. I think there's more on top of that with condensate. So look, Russia may not want prices to get too hot either. Um, so they're a whole nother piece of this of trying to eke out production. So I just, this whole shortfall of investment thing is a little off. And trust me, what's the signal been, you know, what do you think the signal has been to, you know, the U.S. shale producers? It certainly has not been, hey, keep slow down, folks, 73 WTI. Not a first chance in hell. You know, if you're, even if you're a public, the thing you're managing is ESG and investor pressure and all that crap. But you're, if you're private, you, um, it, you're not sitting idle. So it seems like the natural outcome here would be more public companies buying more private companies like we saw with the double eagle transaction, where if you've got public companies that are flat to maybe moderately growing, you've got private companies going gangbusters and building up these big PDP bases with aggressive drilling, that naturally that if you need growth as a public company, you got to go buy these small guys if you can as a public company so if you think you're sure if that's favorable you know frankly you should it's you're better if you're private you just you don't have all this pressure and you can actually you know actually produce oil and gas that the market is is demanding and you're producing it so i mean it is shell making the comments you know and we we probably need to dig into that deeper in a later podcast but shell making you know having the whole dutch court ruling appealing it and that but then making the comments hey you know thinking that they may consider exiting the Permian. Of course, there's a lot of folks public. Yeah, that's $10 billion worth of assets. Rough, rough. Yeah, it's huge. Now, and that makes, you know, I, the world is sort of have to going to come to a reckoning. I mean, BP is is saying they're going to, you know, divest or, or spin off or something with their Romalia field in Iraq. And Iraq's freaking out right now because BP is a huge producer. BP has a massive position actually in the Middle East across the board. So whether or not they put that into a private company and they're not putting that in their GHG emissions, I, I can... We know that when they divested the hill, the hill corp, the assets in Alaska and it went to Hillcorp, we know that their GHG emissions probably increased and, and those are no longer disclosed private company. That's 100% going to be the case, especially in Iraq, because a lot of that gas is flared. And so, I mean, we, we know that from a just a GHG emissions perspective, but probably from a methane and flaring and everything, we know that that's probably going to increase as they divest these assets. So I really think, you know, if they are being true stewards, they need to take this into consideration. But they're, they're just so much pressure, I think, from the ESG side. And now we will definitely not on this podcast, but, you know, what's happening within SEC um, and what, you know, the, the pressure on thinking about, you know, 
the way we're going to regulate these companies, especially all companies to have these GHG emissions, that's going to get really, really messy, very, very tricky, very fast. Um, and But this is a component of that. I mean, we don't even, right now, we don't even have full disclosure from oil and gas companies on exactly what their emissions are right now. Well, let's go to a lower emission fuel, natural gas. It's the summer of natural gas, $3.34 as we do this podcast today. Pretty fantastic result after, after years of, you know, really anemic gas prices. You know, the, the Marcellus, particularly with the delay in uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline, looks to be export constrained at some point. You know, we've got a, a new bull thesis arriving on the the Eagleford and Haynesville because of proximity to LNG markets. Uh, what do you think about the gas market? I think it's great. I mean, I've been bullish. I know you tweeted on on Haynesville. Like, I mean, I've been telling people to get long Haynesville for a long time. Get long that gas, get long Haynesville. We, can, we will certainly see prices come down from here. They could go up from here, but they will certainly come down. I don't think, you know, it, look at average Henry Hub US prices. It's between two and three bucks. Price spikes are great. You can certainly hedge that. But I mean, the market location, Haynesville is huge. There's a reason why Tellurian has a, at, you know, the reason why they have driftwood in Haynesville. There's a reason why folks want to have exposure to the Haynesville. And there's a reason why EOG is big on El Dorado, which is an extension of their Eagleford. Um, the Eagleford asset is that it's close to market. You don't have these infrastructure constraints. You're not worried about, um, you know, the Marcellus is great from a production perspective, but you're going to be capped out at, you know, you have two BCF a day, probably less now, of pipeline growth, you know, of left in, in your pipeline. So it's it. The Those plays are it. And so Texas, you know, Permian gas, you know, Eagleford um, gas. And we've recovered. The interesting thing is, you know, look at gas production in the U.S. We've almost recovered to pre-COVID levels. And that's partly because you, ha- you, you know, have technically older wells and you're not increasing that, you know, your older shale wells are you're hitting bubble points you're increasing that gas but it's also because gas is a smaller molecule and it produces easier and we just have a lot of it and so when you push on gas and that's the other thing to be said about prices look the moment you get excited about prices and people start drilling it up is the moment that prices come back down so it's just one of those things so just as long as you're comfortable with that two three four dollar you know that window and truthfully it's really you know how how cheap can you get it on the water and how cheap can you get it to, to Asia? And that's the story, you know? Um, and there are moments that you can make good money with that, but I think that's really important. I, I kind of like an LNG and gas very much like the oil field service sector, which we'll get into shortly of that. Look, it's the current standard and market we have today is probably not exactly how it's going to look in the future, but I, I damn sure believe that it's going to be there. I'm not concerned that we aren't going to be producing gas or exporting the LNG, but probably the exact structure we're doing it today and how we're financing these things might be a little bit different in the future and probably needs to be uh, to make money, but it's definitely something I would bet on. Got it. Okay. Well, I don't want to get into it too much now, but would like to shout out to Raymond James, who has been talking about a very bullish propane thesis on potential supply demand crunch. Um, I think that that thesis has some legs and I would, uh, would uh, encourage people to take a look at the propane market and NGLs and uh, investments centered upon thereof. So yeah, we export, uh, we export average, we on average we export about a million barrels a day of propane. I mean, pro- propane yeah. is a big deal and propane is focused on, and we can we will we'll circle back, back to, to could do an all propane petrol earth podcast. That'd be a good one. Yeah. Um, so let's move now to your field trip to Midland, Texas where you had uh, a lot of interest on, on LinkedIn when you posted about your trip to Midland. And I, I'm not surprised you get a lot of traction on Midland and, and on LinkedIn, to be honest. But uh, so tell us about that trip, why, why it was special, and more importantly, what you learned that can help people understand the energy markets better. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I am a true nerd, so I, I want to be there and I want to see it um, up close. And, and I'll be honest, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that I have not been to the Permian. And I'm okay saying that, admitting it, because I have, you know, literally, you know, my dad hadn't been to tech, worked in Texas until he worked for, he worked for uh, Centennial for a little while, a couple of years ago. He hadn't been there because he chased the oil booms around, you know, where we grew up. So he, you know, rifle around rifle in the 1990s and the coal bed methane in Wyoming and early, you know, mid to early 2000s. And then obviously the Bakken, you know, in 2008 when everything went crazy. So um, this was my first trip to Midland and I was actually, um, you know, visiting a client and we just sort of were driving out in the field and, and taking looks at things. It was funny because um, 
I, the first thing you notice, it's like, I, you know, if you, I've flown into Bahrain and Bahrain is a very tiny little country and it's basically a whole oil field. You're on top of an oil field. And I felt like that's Midland, you know, you're flying into Midland and the coolest part, it's worth the, the ridiculously expensive United flight just to fly into Midland and see all the, you know, the actual locations. And you can see if you're a true nerd and you're sort of studying it of like how that's evolved, right? Where these are single well pads and now you're, you're getting to the point where actually I think it was a former RSP field that we we're driving by and looking at, and you can see where the pump jacks are, are massively consolidated as opposed to what you see when you fly in and everything's sort of separate. So flying in was just awesome. But then you get to the airport and it is the Midland International Airport. So that is an international Very airport. international. Yeah. So you see plenty of uh, private planes and it is busy. So, so one, one, one question about when you're flying in, I used to always, uh, I, I would make a trip to the, to the Permian about once a year. And I always thought about the private just jet parked ratio. So I was just going to say, yeah, the I, first thing I noticed, and I'm looking at everything, you know, when I see stuff and I was looking at airports and that I noticed first thing to my right in the window was the private jets sitting there. Um, and then I also noticed even when I went to dinner of, uh, you know, some foreign voices, you know, some foreign accents. Um, some European accents and some Middle Eastern accents that were, uh, you know, clearly had probably flown in on their private jets. And the guy, had, I think the guy had even said, you know, I'm exhausted, you know, was off, this is my 24 hour flight or whatever. And I thought, man, and he's in Midland, which means they're, they're making deals. So uh, that's really real. Um, so I noticed that for sure. And I noticed the airport's just busy. So this is, um, didn't quite think that the traffic in and out of Midland and actually the immediate stuff around Midland was quite as busy and looked at some frac sand mines and stuff. Didn't see them quite as busy, but was I mean, what was your flight full? The flight was full. Absolutely. The flight was full and the ticket was expensive. That's also yes, absolutely. So flights packed and that's that's United jacking up prices and everything. But flight was packed and it's I haven't been on one of these tiny planes in quite a while because it's I would go, be on them when I fly to North Dakota and everything for work. But so the tiny planes and it's really funny because you're like yeah three women on the plane. Um, everybody else, you know, it's mostly, you know, male engineers flying into Midland from North Dakota and Denver and, you know, and <laughs> me sitting in by the window, uh, unfortunately I'm tiny, but like these guys just having trouble, you know, normal size guys just having trouble in these tiny seats. And I think they get really excited when they're sat next to somebody who's not this size of the same dude next to them that they actually have some room with their arms next to me. Well, so, sure, sure, Trisha, even if you weren't pretty and I got on a Southwest flight, I'd try to sit next to you because you only take up this much of the seat. So yeah, there's a huge, <laughs> huge benefit to sit, sit next to a tiny girl. So um, yeah, I mean, just observationally and you hear everybody talking. I mean, you're hearing everybody talking the airport plane was delayed. So heard plenty of that. And then, you know, the traffic in and out. So I did see quite a few Liberty or field service trucks, you know, at the Midland airport picking folks up. So you just, you can literally see the activity from the airport and then driving out. Um, I think that's when I say it's like Bahrain and then it's like an oil field. You're immediately seeing the pump jacks are right there. I mean, the moment you're on the edge of town is, is pump jacks everywhere. So I would say that, you know, they're equally as close to houses as, you know, the ones we see in the Denver Julesburg basin here in Colorado. Um, that's just something as we have like, but also say it's, it's extremely expensive. So there's definitely an oil price premium to this, this town of Midland. Um, that's, you know, when I was in Richmond, Texas, visiting Chuck Yates, like those prices were beyond reasonable. And uh, Midland is like, you've flown into, um, you know, I would say actually food prices higher than Denver in some cases. So really expensive hotel is expensive and, and definitely there's plenty of spaces open, you know, in, in hotels. So there's just kind of this premium, but I think some, the big takeaways were, you know, actually seeing some of these sand mines. And I do think, you know, um, we'll, we'll talk about it with the Liberty stuff because I was able to ask Chris Wright about it. But I think the actual, you know, the sand mine trajectory, you know, how busy things are like, look, we're at 470 total rigs. So we're not at the level we were, you know, when things were crazy, um, you know, in 2019. And so we're not we're not at, you know, the real pre-COVID levels. And so I didn't expect to see this, you know, every sand mine going gangbusters. But I think that that's the interesting thing is the service sector is that you still have a lot of entities in it, you know, that are not fully utilized. And that includes something like sand mines. So we drove by a couple sand mines and that is. Okay. So let's digress there just, just quickly, because I'm sure there's some people who haven't followed the, the change in how propping is sourced and used. Cause you know, as a point of context, I was in, you know, Wisconsin detonating sand mines in 2012 and 13. And now that's out of the picture. So how has the profit market changed and, and what do you think the impact is on development economics? 
Yeah, I mean, and for for folks in the industry that are that are listening, I mean, they're well aware of the the shifts from you know getting sand, you know, prop which propent, but getting that uh, sand that we mined in in the Midwest, um, and it was partly because it was from a quality standpoint, largely from a you know we kind of moved to this the size being a smaller mesh size, but it was a lot of a northern white forty seventy, and it. You know, and you can have bigger size propent, um, 30, 50, 20, 40, all these, all these sizes. But it's and really, really good conspiracy. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. you know, the, the quick switch over was basically, you know, folks used to talk about, you know, man-made propent. So it was a man-made ceramic propent that was very expensive, but it was a, almost a perfect sphere. And it was really very, very hard, had a high crush strength. So you can imagine just putting that down hole at 10,000 feet in the Bakken, you know, where it's very hot, you know, and you're trying to make it frack that, you know, in theory, it has a nice viracity, so oil will flow around it. You know, there's still quite a few theories, and actually when I was hanging out with the Liberty guys, we, we were talking about this, but still quite a few theories, I think, even on um, people call, I think it's like a frack religion or a completion engineer still believes in, you know, certain types of profit. You know, the baby got thrown out with the bathwater, and typically prices are, are what dictate big changes and shifts that have in, in the shale revolution, because this thing started in 2008, prices crashed, and then, you know, we've since had multiple price, you know, prices going up and multiple price crashes since then. But really, you know, that whole, if you, if you even thought that you liked ceramics, that sort of went out, the baby went out with the bathwater in, um, in 2014 when prices crashed. And if you thought you needed fresh water, that went out with the bathwater, you know, we threw that out as well because all of a sudden produced water was just fine. And so what happened was, and I, I talked about this in a big report I did with the Energy Policy Research Foundation when I was looking at actually things correcting in 20, looking at it in 2014 and 2015. Those were two big things. I mean, operators literally didn't believe it would work. They were literally using produced water, recycled produced water and crappy sand, whether they were getting it from the Midwest or they were getting it from somewhere else, they were starting to use crappy sand and pumping as much as they could down hole and hoping for the best. And that actually yielded good results. And so that started sort of the, the shift over of saying, oh, hey, we could probably do this. Now, what happened was an extension of, you know, the last mile solution, thinking of just getting crop and getting sand from the Midwest all the way to the Permian Basin. And remember that the Permian Basin was late to the party in the shell boom. So you had the Bakken and you had the Eagleford and you had, you know, Denver Jillsburg Basin and the powder to some extent. And the Permian sort of matriculate, you know, it's bubbling up the whole time, but it hasn't come to like fruition. And we didn't even flip the vertical horizontal rig count, didn't even eclipse itself until actually 2014. So think about the last mile solution of how much money there is to be made and, and decreasing logistics and trucks on the road of just, or you know traffic in general and trains of having sand locally. And you know, folks realized that the sand, you know, it wasn't the same quality as it is in the Midwest, but it was a, uh, you know, this, Low, this uh, 100 mesh, which I am obsessed with and think it works really well, very, very fine sand like powder, have a bunch upstairs that I should be showing you right now. Um, but it's like powder, it's, it's basically actually when you're in the Permian, it is, you're scooping it off the ground, it is like dust almost, um, and you're pumping this down hole. And so once folks got comfortable to realizing this works, and, and UG was a big, big piece of this because they were using this crappy sand long before they, you know, they were, they were choosing to use local mines or mines locally in the Permian before when they they owned mines in the in the Midwest and they were still choosing to use this. So there was a reason they were doing it. And they actually, that reasoning was because they thought it was beneficial to pump this really shit, you know, fine powder down the wells. And we'll get into this with the Liberty stuff and in, in their, their images and stuff. But the point is, is that all these things came together. And I've had lots of conversations with rail companies. I mean, I, you know, I did a lot of work in my previous career with Burlington, Northern Santa Fe and briefed their uh, shoreline railroad conferences and everything. And I remember having these conversations of, you know, this crappy sand will probably work and nobody believed it. And it was like, well, you know, some companies will stay with it. And I thought, you know, once they realize it works and it's cheaper, they won't because the cost reductions are so much. And so what's happened is that most of the Permian, the geology from a, you know, above, from the sand perspective is fitting. It produces, um, your mind produces mostly 100 mesh, but it produced about 20%, sort of 40, 70. And really though, when I drove <laughs> We drove by these vines, it's literally you're just scooping up the sand on top of the ground, you know, getting off the, the shrubs and stuff. And then you got this mine, you got the sand and you're literally putting into these, you know, these cleaners and the trucks, you know, these basically silos and funnels, these trucks are going underneath it and filling up the truck. And those are going into the frac sites. And that's your last mile solution. So you can imagine of just 
having that there and then you're just driving it to wherever it needs to be. So, and there are no, unlike in Wisconsin, there are no neighbors worried about silica dust that want to stop your mining project. Well, just- I, I, I do think there's still, there's still concerns from an, oh, there's still silica dust, there's still OSHA, you know, issues and everything, but obviously less so probably to an extent. Um, right. And they, they have to handle those, but you're, you're literally scooping things up and mining. So I think from the real tech and nerdy perspective, when you're thinking about that and really thinking about the thousands of wells that have been done, and I was looking at, you know, decline curves and everything yesterday and just normalizing it. And it is pretty impressive that every year we've improved a little bit in the Permian um, in, in terms of well performance. And even, even these current wells, we have a fraction of the wells that we brought on last year. And last year we had a fraction of the wells we brought in the year before, but they have all have outperformed even when you're normalizing per lateral foot. And that is from scooping this really crappy dust off the ground and pumping it down hole. And that's largely slick water. That's very impressive. Um, the fact that that's working and also shows how, you know, such early innings of this. But to digress, I guess to bring this back to sort of the Midland thing, those, all the sand mines won, by the way, weren't fully busy. So they weren't fully operational. You know, you didn't have 20 trucks lined up and, and hauling out. So that one, it tells me that, you know, everyone's it, just like any part of the business. All these companies are not created equal. You know, some of them might have better logistics. They might be teamed up better. They might have better guys on the phone, you know, with their contracts and everything. And also sand has been decimated, right? Did, you know, with when we had minus 37 WTI, yeah. the entire, you know, suite of business from upstream to downstream was decimated. And, and the service guys included, including sand, were part of that. So we definitely had folks go under. And then so do you have these guys come back and you probably have more, you know, than you, obviously more supply than you need. And the other component is, I, I think we will see, you know, and we've mentioned Nomad Propent, but I think we will see local sand mining um, take place. And I did ask, you know, at the Liberty Investor Day, I did ask about that. And it was, um, but I, I do think we will probably see it. And I do think it will have an impact on the space. What so, do you mean specifically about that? Near a wellhead? Yeah. So, yeah. So it'd be like, say, you know, a big, a big area that Exxon or EOG is going to mow down a specific area that instead of, you know, hauling from that, you know, sand mine nearby, you know, and EOG is probably not a good example because they still own their own sand, but other companies, um, you know, they would literally be mining locally. And it is very different in that regard because they're scooping it up. They're probably not drying it out and then making what, putting it back. You have to have the technology. You have to have the capacity. You have to have the, the right frack technology to actually do that to where you're you're going you're staying wet and doing that but you know every time somebody this industry evolves actually quicker than we think and i think sometimes we think when we're analyzing pacific you know if it's a service sector if it's sand or if it's you know operators we sometimes get siloed in our thinking um of, of how we analyze this stuff and i think that it's um it, it could move faster than we think and you know technology has a way of just jumping and figuring it out you know if, if it can lower your well cost you know, technology usually comes, you know, folks want to find a solution for that. It, it is amazing how, you know, with we've gone from fresh water to produced water and from imported sand to local sand. Do you think there are any other areas of obvious efficiency or that someone's testing that are like that? I mean, water and sand is pretty much the, the components of a completion job. So. Well, I think we probably take for granted a little bit that, like even flying in and seeing those well pads, I think we probably take for granted that, you know, we're, everybody's doing a 16 well pad and they're not, you know, we, we are just now the reason why people can actually talk about doing these simofracks or, you know, fracking two wells at once. You know, the reason they can even discuss that is because, you know, folks now have you on a consistent basis for well pads. And at the same time, we're also seeing, at least in the Permian, you know, much longer laterals. We're seeing consistently when when some operator says on earnings call that they're going past two miles, I can pull it up and look at it in the data. And yeah, sure as hell, they're going past two miles, you know, and in many instances, they're pushing that further. So when you combine all that of like the sand being local, you know, drilling longer laterals and, you know, having multi-well pads and doing that, you know, people say this, analysts in New York and, and stuff, they say this, but probably hasn't been, I don't think it's it's um, at scale. And now we're sort of seeing that. So those are pretty incredible efficiencies um, and have, you know, long, those have significant impacts on the market in terms of just how many manpower, you know, men you need in the, you know, men and women that you need in the field and actually on the ground. Um, and I think we probably haven't seen that massive trickle in, in cost efficiencies, especially down to all these private operators. You know, they may not be seeing that quite yet. So I think that's really big. Mining locally, literally at your well site could be huge in terms of, of efficiencies. The um, 
uh, we'll get into this with the with Liberty, but I think the simulfractor, I think, you know, whether it's you, you're actually using two crew, you know, two sets of equipment and doing two frack jobs at once, even if you're doing that, if even it's two frack crews and you're just fracking two wells at once and the speed of that, it's really about how fast are you fracking, right? How busy are those frack crews and, and are they, you know, not having downtime? I still think there's a lot of, there's probably growth in that space. Um, and drilling, you know, I think it's fascinating that, you know, we kept hearing even even just pre-COVID, it was that, you know, it was just harder to drill in the Delaware. And I actually hear that in the Powder River too, it's just so much harder. And, you know, the Turner is below the Nio and it's deeper and oh my goodness, it's just tough. Well, you know, and I say that with a little lip service, it is hard. I'm not, you know, trying to rip on drillers or anything, but it it's amazing that, you know, you can push past that and it's working, right? Drilling speeds have obviously improved massively and interesting in every downturn, like just we heard in, in 2014, 2015, when folks couldn't use fresh water or folks couldn't said they couldn't use produced water and they couldn't use crappy sand and then they started using it. They also said, you know, it's really hard to drill in Delaware and, you know, these wells are deeper and it's just hard. And they just didn't have that, that, you know, maybe it was that they didn't have all, you know, all the right drillers in place. And certainly we have more people available, you know, people lost their jobs. And so you can get the right people in the right spaces. And we've seemed to um, get over that. The, the, the industry has seemed to be drilling faster um, and quicker and more efficiently in the Delaware, where, where it is deep, where it is thermally mature, and, and it can be harder to drill. So, you know, we're seeing all those things and all those incremental moves um, really add up to, they've certainly added up to benefit the operator and the producer and the, the exploration production company. They haven't quite benefited, I think, the service company. Um, and that's really, I mean, you know, Liberty Oilfield Service is a perfect example of that, of like one of the premier service operators. But I mean, they were very, very honest in their investor day of saying how much well costs have been reduced and how much, you know, mar margins for them have not necessarily improved to that same extent. Got it. Well, that seems like a natural segue for us to move into the 118-page Liberty Oil Fill Services Investor Day on June 17th, 2021, where you uh, went in person, talked to Chris Wright. And as a background, if you don't know, Chris Wright is an industry champion. He's an advocate of energy to alleviate poverty and um, air quality around the world in terms of LNG specifically. And if you flip through their deck, I would point you to slide 19, where they have a fantastic 3D rendering of what they call the Happy Valley, which is which is a, a 3D map of propent mass, quantity of propent versus the stage length versus your EUR, your recovery on the well, or, or your returns, if you will, um, which I think is great because that's that's precisely the way to think about it. So good investor day from who I think is probably the leading champion and also worth flipping through their ESG report, which was pushed out ahead of their investor day. Where they take on, very it was on, I think it was, I have it here. We, Ethan and I, we, we will go through this in the podcast because it is not your, your typical ESG report. It does have some sure. cool stuff in it, but like, so they handed this out. This is worth, um, I think they put this out June 1st. And he is definitely taking a, a different approach, I think, on ESG with definitely more about part, uh, you know, um, energy poverty and stuff. And but we will we will have a whole episode where we talk at least um, to good extent on this. Maybe we'll get Chris right on our on the show. He's, he's already said he's joining, so that's going to happen. Great. Well, uh, so let's let's talk about the investor day. You know, I mentioned the the Happy Valley. What what else did you learn? What were your key takeaways? Yeah, so I mean, one, it was really nice to be in person. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of folks from the East Coast hadn't, this was their first like in person thing. So everybody was super pumped. Um, you know, and they, that was a, I don't know if you tuned in for the whole thing, but it was all day. This was nine to, to 4 p.m. And it was a, you know, full day event. Um, and then, you know, happy hour afterward that lasted for a couple hours. So, nothing was sort of, everything was covered from soup to nuts. And and if you go through the slides, uh, Chris Wright opens up with sort of the, just the landscape. What is, what does the oil and gas space look like in the U.S.? I would point out, and it is important to think about this. We mentioned it before, but I did ask him this question. Um, and Petron has got a really nice shout out from Chris Wright. So that was pretty cool. Um, but on slide 11 is the breakout of the rig count. And they specifically show, they sort of give you this timeline, but they show how much is like large caps, large, how much is mid caps and how much are private. And basically over half the rig count is private. And that has a huge 
implication for the business in terms of one, the recount growth, and you can see how it's grown, but how the SMID and, and large caps have, have flatlined. Um, and then you can see it has big implications for the frac side. So just keep that in your back of your mind that that's an excellent chart um, on the recount side. Their Happy Valley, um, you know, is great. I think that one of the biggest takeaways from the beginning piece, at least for me, um, was the reduction in costs and, you know, how much they've, Liberty said in many earnings calls, quarter over quarter, especially last year and the year before, the efficiencies that they had. So massive efficiencies in the space. And everybody would always say, analysts would always say, okay, have you tapped out on those efficiencies? And every quarter you kind of think you have, but then they would come out with more. And if you think about that as the whole service sector space of those efficiencies, it's pretty significant. Um, so that comes to this point of they've seen a 50% you know, reduction basically in costs. And so when they have slides where they have this big uplift in production and they're explaining that you know, they can come to an operator and basically say, we can give you a 75,000 barrel increase in production in the first year if you let us tinker with you know, the frack design and stuff. And, you know, and that's basically with larger, you know, slick water, you know, plug and perf jobs. So this is slick water and plug and perf. And this is part of that evolution from 2014 and prices correcting of what we've seen is the result is that we had sliding sleeves before. We used a lot of crosslink. We used, you know, bigger, better sand. And we needed that crosslink. We needed that sort of gel, more viscous fluid to carry that, that bigger, denser sand. And then we realized that actually maybe we don't want to do that and we can create more surface area and better contact. And so they did just a, you know, the way they broke out and talked about, you know, how long your frack is, you know, from 200 foot to 2000 foot in frack height and how really you don't want that frack height, right? And you want to keep that closer to wellbore. But that's been sort of a very, significant evolution in thinking. And that Happy Valley chart is really good um, because it's basically explaining, you know, how techy you want to get versus your cost, right? And it's keeping, it, it, it's that perfect spot of um, basically, it's, it's, they call it integrating, they call it integrating engineering and economics to maximize returns. And that Happy Valley is that perfect point where basically you're, you're getting your, your stage length and your profit mass and you're getting all your tech right for the right order prices. And, you know, that sounds simple, but um, it, it's also when you're hanging out with the, I, the second day was a, a field trip in the field to actually go on the frack fleet. And talking with the engineers was awesome because um, it's something I've experienced, you know, my entire career of talking with completion engineers is that none of them agree. Um, so on how to actually, you know, the exact way to sort of frack. And so there are charts that they show where they talk about, you know, reduction in well costs and increases in, in performance, but they also show these, um, the techie stuff, which is, I think it's slide 36, starting on that. And then you get into these next several slides and it's really about where are your fracks? So, you know, simply, you know, the order in which you're fracking wells. So understanding that order in which you frack your wells um, and the fact that, you know, fracks want to like, you want them to try to go around each other. So if you're, if you're fracking them in a certain order, if you're trying to reduce that frack height and you're trying to create more surface area and you're trying to get, you know, altering your cluster spacing and your stage length can all create these more complex, uh, in theory, again, these more complex fraction networks. And I say in theory, because if you talk to other completion engineers, they'll still say this is theoretical down hole. But it, slides 43 really shows that. Basically, what's the attempt? What are you trying to actually create and do? And that um, is the cool part because it means that you're, you know, really, it comes down to like how tight you can space these wells. What's the optimal spacing? And, you know, if you can reduce that frack length and you can get these knots to communicate with each other, the timing of just when you put these wells together, you know, and getting the spacing right, you know, you're going to get more output. And that, that image, I think, is perfect on slide 46. It's this Goldilocks of like, you know, not fracking enough, fracking too much, and then fracking just right of getting the spacing and everything just right. And that's a sort of game game changing if that you can do that consistently right and get consistent performance that's huge and i think that's big for private companies and then this whole thing on diverters um i'm not completely sold on diverters i know that you'll hear eog you know talks about diverters or at least there's rumors of eog using a lot of diverters and a lot of companies talk about use of diverters we've probably heard this come up pretty significant in the past three years, pre-COVID, the use of diverters. And it's basically like, like 
you know, you can have far field diverters, near field diverters. It's thinking of like plugging off certain areas, you know, to let your frack go somewhere else, or maybe not wanting your frack to go too far. And if you think about it from a really nerdy perspective of like where your frack is down hole, if you could, you know, actually apply that if it works the way it does in theory, it could be very, very cool. Um, I'm not quite, you know, sold that it works out perfectly that way, but it must be working enough that folks are still playing around with it. Um, so that's very interesting to me. And, you know, we're certainly seeing it in, at least they're showing in the, in the well performance of all these things taken together are actually working. And the fact that those costs have been reduced for the operator, it's, it's really huge. Um, but it does get to the question of, you know, is the service company actually making money? And, um, you know, I didn't ask that question. That would have been a little bit rude. Um, but in the in the Q&A session, I did ask Chris about these private guys and if these private guys were, in fact, using, you know, Liberty because they're, you know, Liberty selling a service that is premium and they're selling all the suite of stuff. And, you know, his answer was, hey, we've been working with the private guys for a long time. We don't just work with the big boys. So I certainly think they're in that space. Um, but the reality is, look, if your private guys, if your chunk of the wedge is increased with them, I know they're not all applying this tech, right? I know that every private company is not doing this perfectly, which means we've got a lot of running room. If the wedge of these, if the private guys are pretty significant, you know, in this portion of, you know, they're looking like they're flatlining in the rigs, but let's just say they're, you know, they're the half of the guys drilling, you know, there is a lot of technical growth that can be had with them because they're not all using Liberty Oilfield services. And even more so, I mean, I think they're all, you know, prices are high now, but I, these private guys are probably just getting to the scale, especially in the Permian, that they can sort of do this stuff. So I think from a technical capacity, there's a lot of growth there. And I think from production capacity, it is important for U.S. folks to be thinking about and really OPEC to be thinking about, like, we are, um, whether or not we apply all this tech and all this capacity to every single well is one thing, but the ability to get more out of the ground, it's definitely there. I think we are, um, you know, the, when you're on site and you're seeing this stuff, I think the ability to get more out of the ground is huge. Now, these guys making money. The other question I asked Chris at the, at, toward the end of the day was uh, on these, on simulfracks, on, because I do, this is not a, it's not a well understood topic. Next year has certainly mentioned it in their earnings call a couple times and really try to break it out of saying, you know, a simulfrac is not, I'm not talking simul operations and which you do, you can have wire lines and work over rigs and all kinds of stuff happening on location. But I'm talking about fracking a well, a fracking two wells with less than two full frac fleets. So whether that's one and a half frac fleets, whether that's one, um, whether that's 1.7, you know, it's less men in the field or less, less men and women in the field and the actual frack crew and typically less equipment. So do you need double the equipment? And at least from my understanding, and I think Chris kind of teased this out and you can listen to the playback of that people may be hyping this up. And um, so it's not quite, you know, one doing two, two wells at once. He was saying that Liberty has been doing this for a while, right? That Liberty has been doing Simofrax doing two wells at once, which in and of itself gives you massive efficiencies. But if you think about it from the perspective of not a full frack fleet, right? That it's, it's one frack fleet, it's the, the main equipment. And then maybe you add, you know, maybe it's a little more horsepower, or maybe it's, you know, obviously you have more sand equipment and, and extra equipment there. And those types of things, if you're thinking from that perspective, you know, it's still not, it's not two. And I know that's happening today. I know that we, we do have lots of simulfracking happening, not just um, in the Permian, but also in the Bakken, which means, you know, we may not be counting, you know, the frack fleets right. And that's important because, you know, people are saying we have, you know, 220 frack fleets. Well, are those 220 frack fleets, are they fully dedicated? We know that they're not. We know that they're not completely busy. And we also know that Liberty did a great job in their investor day of explaining to folks how you make money and you make money by every minute you are fracking and so you want to be fracking all the time you do not want downtime you want to be fracking 24 7 and so if you are idle you're not making money well that's a problem because we know those 200 plus frack fleets out there are not fully consistent right and we know in this business if you followed it like i know is that operators will have a dedicated frack for, for a little while but then they'll say no we don't want this and then they'll wait two months and then they'll bring it on and this has been kind of this post-covid weird lumpiness that we don't typically see. So that's pretty meaningful in that if we're also having this simultaneous operations and whether it's one frack fleet or whether it's two frack fleets or um, something in between, it means that we're probably not counting those frack fleets right. Um, and it means that we probably need more attrition in the space um, and that, you know, some, some frack fleets are probably better than others. And I just think 
it's very much, you know, Chris Wright's mentioned it like the internet. And I've, I've said this before, before, you know, in my own analysis of that, you know, the dot-com boom and internet, we had a lot of companies that, you know, the internet did not die, but many, many companies did not survive or were even real. And pressure pumpers, you know, UBS had that really great report um, on on the frack side, which was, it was really, really good. And I think he, in the report, they said, uh, it's pressure pumpers are like cockroaches. You know, they just keep popping up and they just never die. And even now you would think that like, you shouldn't have more pressure pumpers. You should not have new frack companies coming along, but you do. Like all of a sudden you'll just see a crew in, in you know, Midland. And I hear this from clients, they'll just pop up and, you know, pressure pumping because, you know, the barriers to entry are really, you can just like buy this equipment pretty cheap and you can just start up and you think you can do it. Um, and when prices are this high, it's just tempting to do that. Now that all of that and all the stuff I've been explaining all puts pressure on these guys on margins, right? That, you know, how much money are they actually making? And that's why I say it's, it's like LNG and that, you know, they're certainly going to be able to increase their margins over time and prices are going up and we, we're seeing inflation and they're going to be able to go to the operators and bump these prices up. But they, they're, they have not increased prices in tandem with oil prices for sure. So it's a never-ending step of efficiency and greater productivity, and the COVID pain just accelerated that. I, I think it, I think it accelerated, but it, the interesting thing is, I think people would have, if you were far out of this in the analytical community, you may have said, "Oh, we should see massive consolidation, and this should just be done." And it just doesn't work. It, we have a very unique service. It's people always say, "If you, you know, why did it work in the U.S. with this very nimble service sector? That nimbleness that sort of enabled it." you know, is, is kind of the devil's in the details. And it certainly enabled the industry to keep thriving, but it's, it's painful right now and isn't a transition space um, currently. Dare I say that we have at 51 minutes and 50 seconds reached the end of our a natural stepping point, if you will. Absolutely. Um, I will just say the field trip was awesome. Actually going to the field and seeing it, I, I have not been, I've been on a rig, I've been in pump jacks, I've been in the field, but seeing the equipment from the frack fleet side and everything is, um, and actually, cause I'm so nerdy and I like to think about what's happening down hole is, um, it is, if you're really studying this, it is so worth to see it because you think about it differently. Um, and just thinking about the manpower, the equipment, everything, you know, it's, it's very impressive and, uh, totally worth seeing and super helpful from an analytical perspective in the business. Well, thank you for another excellent episode, Tricia. Thank you to our subscribers. Please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or YouTube and hit the like button because that helps us out. And please, reviews. Lots of reviews. We like reviews. And yeah, we like positive reviews. Tricia likes those five-star reviews. So thank you for your time. This has been episode 20 of the Petronerd Podcast. It's June 23rd. We'll be back uh, on our weekly case. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.